Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. Now, as many of you will know, we have embarked on a colossal marathon taking in every single one of the 32 countries that has qualified for the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. And we are talking about aspects of those countries' histories. Now, today we alight on the shores of the great North American country of Canada. Now, you might think Canada is an odd place to have qualified for the World Cup because it doesn't have a, a terribly distinguished footballing history. But Tom, it does have an amazing sporting claim to fame, doesn't it? Because is, am I not right in thinking that Canada took part in the world's first ever international sporting fixture of any kind? It was against the United States. And um, the sport was, amazingly, cricket. Oh. So not ice hockey. So that's our subject for today, is it? The Canadian cricket? No, I was I, I was very, very tempted to do the history of Canadian cricket, but I decided not to. Um, and instead, I, I thought that I would focus on something else that is very, very close to my heart, a truly admirable mammal, Dominic. Yes. And a mammal that in many ways is, I guess, the, uh, the Stanley Baldwin of, of the animal world. And it's the beaver. And I describe oh. it as the Stanley Baldwin of the animal world because it's it's kind of the in a way the embodiment of the kind of conservatism that Stanley Baldwin embodied. So it's a, a proud homeowner. So it makes you know right. these, these yes. wonderful kind of homes. Yeah, very monogamous. Uh, so right. lifelong married yeah. relationship, like Stanley and what what was her name? And Lucy. And Lucy. Yeah. Or later the Empress Theodora, if you listen to our episode about Love Island. <laughs> yeah. You know, cares for its young, all that kind of thing. Very hardworking, obviously chop busy chopping down trees and all that kind of stuff. So in a way, the kind of the embodiment of, of a, a kind of conservative ideal, if you right. like. And it's, it's kind of served as an emblem, if, if not for Canada, then certainly for Canadian history. So Canadians have always had a slightly ambivalent relationship to the beaver. So it has served them as a symbol of their country. So 1851, its very first post- postage stamp. Do you know what it was called, Dominic? The beaver stamp, Tom? It was called the threepence beaver, Dominic. So it uh, depicted a beaver crouching on a bank uh, behind, beside a, a stream. Um, obviously, it cost 3p. But when in uh, 1921, Canada wanted a coat of arms, and there was a lot of discussion about what animal should be on it, they didn't go for the beaver. They went for the moose. They went for the moose. And the yeah. reason that, that, that they didn't want the beaver was because uh the guy responsible for it said they didn't want a rat oh what which was harsh well because because the beaver is a rodent but it's not actually a rat so it was it was robbed so that's harsh isn't it it's harsh but i mean i think the fact that that the beaver was in the running kind of it illustrates how how significant an animal it is but it it, it's not just that it's an emblem of of canada itself it's an emblem as i said it's an emblem of canadian history 
Yes, because it goes back to the very beginnings of human habitation in what becomes Canada. And it runs right through the history of the native peoples in Canada, the coming of the Europeans, the uh, the war between the British and the French, uh, industrialization, ecological collapse, and then ecological recovery. Craigie, there's a lot that's going on there, Tom. It, 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 it's, it's a great, great window onto the vast sweep of Canadian history. Okay, great. Let's go for it. So there have been various species of beaver that have existed in Canada, of which the most extraordinary is Castoroides. Uh, which is uh, AKA the giant beaver, Dominic. So it, yep. was, it was a giant beaver. Does very much, <laughs> very much what it says on the Thanks tin. for that, Tom. That's, that, uh, that's your capacity, <laughs> that's, David Attenborough. That's top paleontological information there. So that was, right. um, that was kind of roaming Canada about one and a half million years ago. And we say giant, how big? About the size of a black bear. Ooh, that is big. So it, it wasn't going around chopping down trees and building, you know, dams dams and things yeah um it was it was more like i think the ecological niche that it inhabited it's been compared to a, a hippo so it was kind of like a, a little hippo um tom it's just a stupid question yeah because you know i know nothing about zoology science mm-hmm. or the natural world are there not beavers in europe we'll come to that okay all right we will it's come a, to that it's a cliffhanger yeah we will come to that so the the giant beaver was not in europe so this was specific to North America and the north of North America. And it was large, very large, and it yeah. it was alive and roaming the wilds of North America until about 10,000 years ago. And so the inevitable question is the question that we asked him. I don't even remember we did an episode. Of course you remember because you did it, but we did an episode <laughs> on Australia before Columbus. Yes. Where there were, again, huge indigenous animals that basically went extinct around the time that humans arrived in Australia. And there is the same issue around the arrival of humans arrive in, in uh, cross the Bering Straits, come into North America. And it's kind of around this time that uh, the giant beaver is going extinct. Uh, and its remains have been found with human artifacts in a cave in Ohio. Okay. And there are stories that are told by Native American peoples that seem to describe uh, f- perhaps folk memories of these giant animals. There's a, a, a brilliant book by Adrian Mayer, who's um, she's kind of classicist stroke paleontologist, and she has argued that a lot of the stories that are told by Native American peoples are derived from their coming across fossils of ancient creatures. And so one of oh, the right. theories that she yeah. advances is that perhaps they don't reflect kind of enduring folk memories from, from 10,000 years ago, but coming across clearly the, the, the fossils of giant beavers and that this is where yeah. the, the stories come from. We don't know. We don't know. So, but, but anyway, the, the giant beaver very sadly went extinct. I mean, who wouldn't want to see a giant beaver? I'd love to see a giant beaver, Tom. Roaming the lands of the frozen Canadian north. Put my colours to the mast on that. Yes. Um, but that left the, uh, the, the beaver that we're more familiar with. So, so this kind of smaller beaver. And, North America and particularly Canada, Dominic, it was full of beaver. There was so much beaver. There were so many beavers. And it's been estimated that, that maybe 60 million, maybe 100 million, maybe 300 million, maybe 400 wow. million. So that is that's, a lot of beavers. Yes. That, that's it. Yeah. Why so many? But because they didn't have, the, the, there wasn't a predator. There wasn't a predator right. going for okay. them. And they basically, in terms of kind of riverine, riverine environments, they were the apex mammal. Okay. And, and because they, you know, they chopped down trees with their big teeth, 
and they build dams and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. They completely sculpt the landscapes. So they reroute rivers. Um, you know, they can flood valleys. Basically, they create in, in, in entire ecosystems that other animals, other plants then depend on. And so in, in a sense, if you had been roaming Canada. Me personally. 500 years ago. Yeah. The landscape would look completely different because of the impact on it of beavers. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. This is that the, the, there are lots of beavers, and so therefore they are very useful to the native peoples who who come in and who settle across Canada. Yeah, because it's not like there aren't people there in this period. Yeah, obviously they're not on the scale of of the populations that will come from Europe, but and these are peoples who who need, say, fur. You know, it's very yeah. cold in Canada. That's the one thing everyone knows about Canada. Yes, its winters are very, very cold, uh, and these the the beaver furs are tremendously. Um, you know, they're, they're, they provide you excellent, excellent insulation. So there's no question that native peoples are hunting beaver for fur. They're also hunting them for meat. Uh, it's very calorific, um, and in fact, much more calorific than than most other game that they they could have hunted. Okay. Um, they use the sinew for cord. They use the um, the the jaw bones for snowshoes. Intriguingly, uh, they seem to have used the claws for necklaces. And uh, and Dominic, you asked me were the beaver in um, in Europe slightly different species, but basically the same. And it's interesting. Anglo-Saxon women seem to have been obsessed with beaver necklaces. Um, so the, the teeth and they would cap yeah. them with gold and they've been found in about, do they, about 20 graves. So, so that's a kind of interesting parallel between, uh, Anglo-Saxon England and, um, prehistoric Canada. And yeah. that there is absolute, you know, we have absolute archaeological evidence. We have, you know, bones of, of beavers bearing the, the marks of knives. There was a, um, a, a burial found, um, near Lake Huron, which had a, a copper axe with fragments of beaver pelt wrapped around it. So that was about two and a half thousand years ago. So beavers are very, very important to the subsistence of the native peoples. Yeah. So they're hunting them, but they're not hunting them at all to the point of extermination. Humans no. and these millions and millions of beavers are, are, are coexisting. Well, because the human numbers are so, are so small. I mean, presumably yes. by comparison with today. And then, of course, Europeans arrive. Yes. The late 1400s, um, you're starting to get fishermen going to Newfoundland uh, from France, from Portugal, from Spain, and perhaps particularly from England. So they're hunting cod, they're hunting whales, and they start to land. Yeah. And when they land, they come into contact with native peoples and they start to you know, exchange stuff, knives, whatever. And what the native peoples can provide in exchange is um, beaver pelts. So to begin with, this trade in beaver fur is a, a sideline. Yeah. But then the traders start going inland. So rather than just kind of fishing the waters off the Canadian coast, they start to, to sail up the rivers. And the, the first person to leave a record of, of what he finds when he starts sailing up the rivers is uh, a French explorer called Jacques Cartier. Um, yes. And he sails up the St. Lawrence River. And the St. Lawrence River will become the kind of the great center of French culture in North America. Yes, the great, art, the great artery of Quebec, basically. Yeah. And so in 1535, he describes visiting a place that will become the site of Montreal in due course. 
Um, and he's, he's told by the peoples who live there, the, the Iroquois, that, uh, this is a place called Hoche Lager, which means in their language, the place of the beaver dam. And so that's, I, I gather, still a region of, of Montreal to this day. Okay. Um, so it's oh, a, nice. a, a trace element of, of the beaver in the heart of, of modern day Montreal. But what happens is that because there are all these beavers with their, with their pelts, lining the uh lining the 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 the, the various tributaries that that run off the the St. Lawrence River more and more fur trappers start to sail up it and to settle it yeah. and to uh capture the uh the various beavers and the the native people start getting sucked into it so they get sucked into the uh, the great vortex of the uh, of the beaver trade so you've got you've got French traders, but you also increasingly have English traders. You have Dutch traders, so they're all competing. But yeah. it, it, it inevitably, these traders are relying on various kind of native peoples uh, along the Saint Lawrence River and you know southwards into what will become the United States and Long Canada. So they they all start fighting over it as well. And by the seventeenth century, you you were getting what are, are known as the Beaver Wars. The beaver wars. The I've never beaver heard of these wars. wars and essentially what is happening is that the Iroquois, you know, this great tribal grouping that uh, yeah. Cartier had dealings with to begin with, they're carving out, they're trying to carve out essentially the equivalent of a, an enormous kingdom and monopolize the fur trade with, with the Europeans. Yeah. And this seems to have been a, a, an almost literally genocidal campaign. So they are aiming to literally destroy as many of the kind of rival tribes as they possibly can. Um, so this is, you know, the last of the Mohicans, the famous novel. Yes. The Iroquois wipe out the Mohicans. I mean, that's why there's only... Oh, so that's why he's the last of the Mohicans. Yes. Yeah. And they, the, their main targets are the Hurons, who obviously give their name to Lake Huron. We've already mentioned that. Um, and the Algonquins, uh, as in the, the famous club. Yes. So the Algonquins and Hurons are, are trading with the French. So the French back them. And the Iroquois inevitably, therefore, are backed by the English and the Dutch. And so, and so it's a kind of horrific snarl of, of colonial and Native American, um, yeah. uh, hatreds and rivalries. And by the end of the 17th century, the, the effect of this on the, the native tribes is so devastating. And the influx of European traders is so large that Europeans are starting to be able to cut out the Native American middlemen and seize control of the trade themselves. The, the French have a model where they they sponsor kind of independent traders. Coureurs du bois, they're called. So w wood runners, basically. Yeah, basically. And it, it reflects the fact that they are the ones who are going very, very deep into um, into the hearts of the, you know, the vitals of Canada um, yeah. and kind of exploring it, mapping it, all that kind of thing. Be because the beavers are starting to vanish from the the more readily accessible locations right so the more they vanish from there the further you have to go and search for them the spanish are doing the same as well um so for for, for the french the beaver is le castor and for the spanish is il castor and so that's why you get a lot of places in in north america that kind of bear witness to this so you have uh, castorville bayou castor lac du castor solitaire Prairie du Castor, Castor Point, Castor Plunge, lots of others Crikey. like that. And lots of kind of beaver creeks and stuff like that, I yes. imagine, across Canada. Absolutely, because, of course, the English are also getting involved. And in 1670, yeah. you know, there are individual trappers, of course, 
that who are English too, but they go for the kind of they they set up a large company. In sixteen seventy, from Charles II, they get uh, a, a charter for what is officially called the Governor and Company of Adventurers of England trading into Hudson's Bay, which is better known as the Hudson's Bay Hudson Company. Bay company. And um, what the Hudson's Bay Charter does is that it gives those who've uh, you know who, who who've been given the charter exclusive rights to a vast vast swathe of territory. So it's basically all the lands that um, about Hudson's Bay, which is kind of an north you know it's in the north of Canada. It's a huge expanse of water, uh, and all the rivers that are kind of draining into it. All of this is given over to English traders, and it's it's a region that is called Rupert's Land after friend of the show prince rupert oh crikey charles second uncle prince rupert's a pitch up in a beaver themed podcast yes he he absolutely has it's i mean so it's about uh it's i mean it's almost half of canada it's about 40 percent of modern day canada so it's a I mean, huge I'm just looking at um, my uh, my canadian geography is not brilliant so i just googled a a map of canada i mean hudson's hudson bay tom is pretty much the size of western europe i mean gigantic it's an enormous, enormous expanse, and basically, I mean, basically, it's free. Uh, so, so all they have to do in re- in return for this charter is that yeah. um, should the king or uh, any of his heirs or successors enter uh, Rupert's land, then the company has to hand over two black beavers and two elk. But obviously, you know, the likelihood that Charles II or slim. you know, <laughs> absolutely slim, and in fact. Uh, the, the, the first time that, um, that this kicked in was, um, when the future Edward VIII. So he was Prince of Wales. Oh, yeah. Um, in 1927, yeah. he went on a tour of, of Canada and he stopped in, uh, in Winnipeg or en route to, uh, to Alberta where he had a cattle ranch. And so they had to hand over two black beavers and, and, and a pair of elk. I'm sure Edward VIII would love that. <laughs> yeah. But also you may remember in, we did, um, an episode on, uh, uh, animals in the Tower of London, yeah, menagerie, and they and they the, the Hudson's Bay Company gave a bear, a, a very grumpy bear, oh, I do to um, to uh, George the Third, which and he was disappointed because he'd been hoping for a fur coat. <laughs> well, that raises a question. I wanted to ask about the uses of the beaver. Well, we'll come to that, Dominic. Okay. Oh, am I jumping ahead? No, we will come to that. But I just wanted to say that obviously, this land is not really Charles II's to give. It already belongs to native peoples already there, but also why should the French acknowledge, um, you know, an English king giving away all this land? So, um, the, 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 the chart, the issuing of the charter, the Hudson's Bay Company does not, uh, end the conflict between French and, and English trappers, quite the opposite. And over the course of the 18th century, it fu- massively fuels colonial rivalries between England and France. Yeah. And, during the uh, the Seven Years' War, Canada is absolutely at the heart of the kind of international dimension of it. So with India, Canada is one of the great territories that is up for grabs in, in the Seven Years' War. Um, this is the uh, the war that sees the, probably the most famous battle in Canadian history when uh, General Wolfe captures Quebec. Oh, that's a great one of the greatest battles in British history, let alone Canadian history. I mean, yes, and it inspires the, the famous painting by uh, by Benjamin West. Yes. That Nelson admired, and Nelson said, "Why don't you paint pictures like that?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and at the end of the Seven Years' War, Britain has essentially uh, taken de facto control 
over Canada. And in 1763, the Treaty of Paris um, takes legal possession of the whole of Canada. And right. so as a result of that, there is now unitary control, not just of Canada, but therefore of the trade in beaver furs in Canada. Britain monopolizes the beaver. On that note, Tom, we should take a quick break. And when we come back, you can tell us about the modern story of the beaver. And if you like beavers, this is definitely the podcast for you. See you in a minute. Bye-bye. Support for this episode comes from the National Theatre. So, Tom, we are talking once again about the National Theatre's very own streaming platform. And it is called the National Theatre at Home. Yeah, it's a fantastic way to watch loads of brilliant theatre from the comfort of your sofa at home. There's no need to miss out just because a show has sold out or because you can't get a babysitter or because a trip to London is too far for one evening. And this month, Dominic, they are launching the Olivier Award winning musical, The Little Big Things, an extraordinary true story about an ordinary family. When one moment changes everything, Henry's family are split between a past they no longer recognise and a future they could never foresee. It is based on the Sunday Times best-selling autobiography by Henry Fraser. It is a great new musical about the transformative power of family and how it is the little things that matter the most. Oh, Tom, it's so life-affirming, isn't it? You can subscribe now for only £9.99 a month. And to find out more, visit ntathome.com. That's N-T-A-T home.com This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, before we start the second half of today's episode, I just wanted to read out an email from Ari in Canada. Dear Tom and Dominic, I'm an 11-year-old kid from Canada and my mom and I listen to your podcast. Your podcast, says Ari, is very good. 
except you barely ever mention Canada. In your episode about the USA and England, in that episode, you talked about the War of 1812 and you mentioned Canada once. Why don't you mention Canada more? Thank you for your time, Ari. Well, Ari, I hope that today's episode has lived up to your expectations. Uh, And if it hasn't, of course, you know who to blame. And that person is Tom Holland. So, Tom, we are talking beaver. We have reached the Treaty of Paris, which I think is something of a landmark in the history of the Canadian beaver. And Britain is now in control of this enormously lucrative trade. So where are you taking us next? Well, when you take possession of a kind of vast new world full of creeks and forests and mountains and prairie, you know, you want to know what you've got. And so the decades that follow the Seven Years' War, which of course also sees the American War of Independence, uh, when the English colonies in, in what becomes United States cease to be British. And so Canada therefore becomes ever more important to the British crown. There is, um, pe- people want to know what's out there. Yes. And so end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, you see a, a systematic attempt to map Canada. And the great name associated with this is a guy called David Thompson. Who goes out and he, he, he maps Canada basically first for the Hudson's Bay Company, then for a rival company, also very much interested in uh, dealing with beaver pelts. Um, and Thompson has been described as the great mapper, the great geographer of Canadian history and Canadian history. And in 1814, he publishes this in- incredible map that's so accurate that even a century later, the Canadian government are using it as the basis for the maps that they're they're publishing. And he, because he's been out there and seen the vastness and the scale and the majesty of the Canadian landscape, and he's he's seen the animals that inhabit it. So he's he's kind of getting there in advance of the settlers who are moving across. And he writes about Canada in the age before Europeans arrived that this continent from the latitude of 40 degrees north to the Arctic Circle and from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean may be said to have been in the possession of two distinct races of beings, man, so the native peoples, and the beaver. And he says that all the lowlands were in possession of the beaver and all the hollows of the higher grounds. And he witnessed for himself dams that were a mile long. A mile long? A mile long. And... This is still something that can be seen by people going out into into the wilds. People are, are still capable of being stupefied by the scale of what beavers are capable of creating. Yeah. The dams, all that kind of stuff. And there's still so many pelts capable of being skinned from a beaver that Thompson says that they serve people across the expanse of Canada, basically as the currency. You know, that's the... That's the basis of of the entire economy across Canada. Yeah. But he's already aware that that this is under threat and that there's a possibility that you know all of this will vanish. So in 1797, he meets um an old Cree man, and the Cree man says that we we are now killing the beaver without any labor. We are now rich. So that's great. Everyone mm. can make a huge profit from it. Everyone's quids in. But we shall soon be poor. For when the beaver are destroyed, we have nothing to depend on to purchase what we want for our families. Strangers now overrun our country with their iron traps, and we and they will soon be poor. And this is a very, very accurate prophecy because the demand for beaver pelts, it's not just the furs in themselves provide coats or whatever. Yeah, It's 
because they beaver pelts make for the best hats in the world. There's a particular quality to the fur. They kind of they have barbs on them, and so they interlock. And this the, these barbs on the fur make it ideally suited to felting. And then when you've made the felt into kind of hats, absolutely waterproof. So you can go out in this hat in the rain and it won't just kind of collapse. And we talked about this with, um, with Alison Matthews David in our episode on, on lethal fashion. Yes. And so basically all, you know, if you imagine a hat in the 18th century, so it could be a top hat or a tricorn hat or a bicorn hat or a shako or any of those stuff, any of those things, it will have been made from, from a beaver pelt. Oh, so I've completely misread this. So I'd kind of imagine when you said beaver pelt hats, I'd sort of... So it's not like Davy Crockett. Right. Or Russian star hats or something. No. You're basically saying, even if I'm wearing, you know, a tricorn hat, a, a, my squire's hat that we talked about in a yes. previous podcast, when I'm a fat and corrupt squire. Yes. That would have beaver in it. Because if it's not made from beaver fur, if it's not made, you know, if the felt is not made from beaver fur, yes. if you go out in the rain to evict your peasants or whatever... Yeah, which I would... Of course you would. Yes. Then, you, then, then it would just disintegrate and kind of melt into a, a furry sludge down your face, which would inhibit your dignity. <laughs> and would. You wouldn't want that at all, would you? It would indeed. It would ruin. Oh, yeah. If I'm throwing poor people out in the cold, I want to look, have a dignified hat while I'm doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. I would have an eco-unfriendly hat. <laughs> exactly. So not only, not only, Dominic, not only can you evict peasants, but yeah. you can have the consolation of knowing that you're also destroying one of the most remarkable creatures in the North American continent. This is the kind of stuff I'm all about, Tom. You're killing two birds with one stone. <laughs> yeah, two beavers with one stone. So the thing is, it stays stiff in wet weather. That's that's the key. Okay. That's the great thing about beaver. That's what I look for in a it hat. It stays stiff. That's the wonderful thing. Right. <laughs> and so there are huge, huge fortunes to be made. And the, the, these fortunes are not just European fortunes. Say, you know, the, the original, the archetype, the trendsetter of the New York plutocrat is um, John Jacob Astor. Oh, yes, of course. So who's, who's originally, he's German, he's come to England, and then he goes to, uh, to, to America, to New York, um, and he makes his fortune trading in beaver pelts. He, he imports them from Canada to, to Manhattan, and then he exports them to Europe, and then he diversifies into opium dealing and Manhattan real estate and all these fail-proof ways for making money in New York. Yeah. And by the time of his death, this beaver pelt trading has made him the richest man in the US. So he's worth $20 million, which it's been calculated as equivalent to the wealth of Jeff Bezos today. So it's about 1% of, yeah. of the entire GDP of the United States in, in his lifetime. And he is always very, very aware of what he owes his fortune to. So he has a ship called the Beaver. Uh, and if you go to Astor, Astor Place in, in Manhattan today, you'll still see beaver emblems all over it. Crikey. So kind of memorial to... Uh, Tom, I am, I am learning stuff in this podcast. That's what this is all about, isn't it? Yeah, it's... Uh, well, it is, yeah. You see, you, you, you were worried. Well, you don't like zoology or nature or any of that kind of stuff. I wasn't worried. I was, in, I was intrigued. I was okay. intrigued to see where you were going with this beaver business. But it's turned out to be much more colourful and much richer than I had ever imagined. That's beaver for you. Yeah. So talk to me more about beavers, Tom. Okay. So over the 18th century into the 19th century, the pace of trapping just intensifies, intensifies, and intensifies. And iron traps have been introduced in the 17th century. So that helped to fuel the beaver wars of, of that right. century. But then what happens in the 18th century is, is a, 
a technique for trapping beaver that is very, very distinctive to the beavers. Okay. Because it, it, it reflects something that, that right the way back to classical antiquity in Europe had always kind of fascinated people about the beavers. So, so their teeth? No, it's not. It's a substance called castorium, which is a, a kind of yellow gunge that they secrete. So, so when they, they dig it, you know, they, they build a dam or whatever, or a house. Yeah. They will excrete this yellow gunge, and then they will urinate over the yellow gunge to create a kind of mixture. A paste. That, will, that serves to mark their territory. Do, really? Yeah. So this castorium, people weren't sure where it came from. So the Greeks thought it came from their testicles. It's not from testicles. It's actually from, I gather, what biologists call specialist sacs. When you said you wanted to do a podcast on beaver, Tom, I have to admit I feared that it would involve specialist sacs, and so it has proved. And so it has proved. And so the Greeks thought that the, 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 these were testicles, and they had this whole weird thing about how if beavers were menaced, they would gnaw the, the testicles off. Uh, and it was even said that if they'd done that and they were being hunted a second time, they would kind of bare their asses at the hunter <laughs> to show that they didn't have testicles, that they'd already removed them. This is reflection of the, the degree to which in the classical world, and indeed yeah. later, castorium was very, very prized. So the Romans used it as a kind of, uh, you know, kind of aspirin. It was, you know, if you had a headache or anything. Oh, for God's sake. You take a dose of castorium. <laughs> what? It was also used by abortionists. So it was believed okay. to induce abortion. But it was also used as the basis of perfumes. And it was throughout early modern into the modern period. Castorium, if it's refined, apparently the, the, the scent is absolutely delicious. And Dominic, yeah. uh, right again, right the way into the present day, it has been used as a vanilla substitute in ice cream. I mean, for goodness sake, Tom, this is, this is implausibly multi-purpose. I mean, what if yes. you have a headache, you're <laughs> pregnant. And you want an ice cream. Yeah, you want an ice cream and you're going out for dinner and you want to smell good. Yes, exactly. So beavers are, you know, kind of very nutritious. Right. They have fur that will enable you to wear a, a tricorn hat. Yeah. And they have this kind of excretion. This sort of magic stuff. It's the basis for, for furniture and, and, and ice cream flavoring. So in yeah. every way, you can see why, why people are after them. But the kind of awful thing from the point of view of the beaver that is discovered in the, in the 18th century is that if you take castorium, and you, you you wipe it over a cage, beavers will go straight for it. They kind of go, brilliant. Let's go for that. Wow. And they plunge in, and yeah. the cage closes or, you know, grabs their leg or whatever, and, and they, they can be got. And so this massively, massively intensifies the, uh, the ease of trapping beaver. Right. And what then happens in the 1820s is that you have a teenager in New York yeah. who develops a, a kind of very lightweight trap. And he's a guy called Sewell Newhouse. And these, these traps are called Newhouse traps. And they are sold in huge, huge numbers to the Hudson's Bay Company. So they've got the bait and now they've got the lightweight traps. They can just take them out. You know, it doesn't matter how remote the creeks may be. You can now out, go out with your castorium, with your, your Newhouse trap. And that basically there is nowhere that is so remote that uh, you, you can't trap a beaver. Gosh, this is a very this is taking a very sad turn, Tom. Well, but but you know, this is one we've talked about before on the podcast. We've talked about what happened to the buffalo on the the plains yeah. of of the United States. Uh, we've talked about the passenger pigeon in our episode on the pigeons. The the kind yeah. of um, you know they they went extinct. You know, yeah. this this process of industrial level slaughter is a feature of you know the Europeanization of what you know both the United States and I'm sad to say Canada. But in Canada, 
there is a consciousness that in a way it's because beavers are so you know they provide so much that they are a resource that needs conserving and there are right. you know there are government officials so the cree guy who who said we're going to lose our income yes it's it's not just the native peoples who who realize this there are colonial administrators who appreciate it as well and they try to start to introduce conservation measures much to the hostility of, of the trappers you know there is no tradition of of conserving animals uh, at this point but it's it's a kind of groundbreaking program where over the course of the 19th century and into the 20th century there are attempts but they're feeble because it doesn't have mass support there isn't a kind of sense among most people living in Canada and the broader world that they have an emotional investment in conserving these extraordinary creatures and what happens in the 20th century is that the beaver gets a very very charismatic spokesman who becomes a a, a global figure um, a Ooh. global spokesman for the process of, of conservation. And he is a man called Grey Owl. And he is, you know, he, he's, he speaks with the authority of, you know, th- this, this tradition among the native peoples of Canada that you have to, you can, of course, trap animals and use them, but you have to show them respect. And that kind of wiping them out on, you know, on a vast industrial scale is not the done thing. And it helps when Grey Owl gives this message to white Canadians. It helps that he looks, I mean, he looks brilliantly wise. So he's the absolute kind of embodiment of how people would imagine a kind of a very wise, in the words, of, in the phrase of the time, a red Indian. Right. You know, this is, this is not a, a, the kind of red Indian who will scalp you. This is the kind of red Indian who will speak with the wisdom of many many thousands of years of living with oh gosh he does look very wise i've i've just googled him he does so he had so he has black hair he has an aquiline nose he has and he he dresses like a kind of stereotype of a native american so he actually like an apache he claims to be yeah. the um that his mother was an apache he has a buckskin vest uh, he wears moccasins um and he has the uh, the woodsman skills of the uh the Ojibwa people of Northern Ontario, among which he, he he lives. So, looking at a photo of him, Tom, he he's he's a, looks to me like a man who absolutely is the embodiment of a kind of Native American. What do they call them in Canada? First Nations kind of authenticity and and dignity and spirituality absolutely. and all these. And what what gives a kind of real heft to his, you know, his, his his message is that he himself had originally been a beaver trapper. Right, and he had then kind of had a, a Damascene conversion, and he'd become this great enthusiast, this great cons- for, for conserving the beaver. He becomes the protector of the beaver, the father of the beaver, if you like. And he starts writing articles about it. He starts writing books about it. And then in 1930, yeah, the head of this kind of what this this um this national park, say Riding National Riding Mountain National Park in uh, in Manitoba, sends in a, a film crew to film him hanging out with his beaver friends. Uh, and they make a nine-minute film, and this is the first professional film ever made of beavers in the wild. And, Ooh. you know, so people in New York or London can see what beavers in the wild actually look like and how they yeah. behave. And they have this, you know, this guy who looks the embodiment of First Nations. Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely embodiment of the, the dignity, the wisdom, all that kind of stuff. And as a result of that, he gets an official role in Riding Mountain National Park. You know, he is, he's basically beaver 
beaver guardian. It's his job to look after them and to, to boost their population. And this wins him kind of international fame. And so he goes on a tour of Britain. He goes on a tour of the United States. And his message is always the same. We have to conserve the beaver. And in 1938, he, he dies of pneumonia. And his, his legacy, particularly in Canada, is this sense that it's not just about economic self-interest. There is a kind of moral duty to conserve this extraordinary creature. And he's at the head of you know what over the course of the 20th century will become a kind of mounting campaign to conserve wildlife populations that are under huge threat. What an amazing story, Tom. What an amazing guy. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's extraordinary that he's not better known in Britain. Well, oh, and all the more amazing because, in fact, he is from Britain. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, what a he's, twist. He's, he's, he's actually, um, he's not a Native American. Oh, no. He's from Hastings. <laughs> uh, and his real name was, was Archibald Stansfeld Bellaney. Archibald Bellaney. Archibald Bellaney. Oh, my word. What a twist. At school, he was a huge fan of cowboy and Indian stories, and he became obsessed by them. So he's basically role-playing as a Native American. Well, so that's what his critics say. Uh, but I think, I think people who are kinder to him would say that he goes out to, uh, to, to Canada. He has an unbelievably complicated love life that involves right. him falling in love with and then dumping a succession of Native American women. Um, okay. Well, that doesn't necessarily paint him in a good light, Tom. No, but, but I think, I mean, he adored, he adored the culture and he, he does become absolutely passionate about the need to conserve the beavers, but he's also right. becomes, you know, he, he identifies so strongly with Native American culture as opposed to, you know, white Canadian culture that he just wants to become a, a, a part of them. Um, and, you know, and he does, you know, he does great work and the legacy, one of the measures of his legacy, not just his legacy, but I mean, he's the, he's the most famous spokesman for beaver conservation is that today in North America, there are about 10 to 15 million beaver. So that's, you know, that's a huge, huge recovery because at, at one point they were down to about half a million, maybe even lower. Right. So they, they could easily have gone extinct. And are they still being trapped? Yes, but under very tight control. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very carefully regulated and they are recovering. I mean, so much so that actually in 2007, a beaver was, uh, a wild beaver was seen in the Bronx. Um, so, Crikey. you know, that first time in, and I think about over two centuries that a wild beaver had been seen in, you know, the New York area. Um, and, and the other good news. What you, a story. So you asked about, about Europe and let's, let's focus on Britain yeah. where. I, I know this is about Canada, but but it's this is this is quite touching, Dominic, because it actually relates to you and me. So, beavers were in Britain. Yes. We already talked about how uh, Anglo-Saxon women love to wear necklaces made from their incisors. Um, yeah, but they had basically they'd gone extinct in England and Wales probably by the 14th century. Ah, so was the Normans, isn't it? Although bizarrely, I read in uh, the Missing Links. Um, by Ross Barnett, which is a, a fabulous book about um, mammals in Britain that have gone extinct. Uh, yeah. And he says that in 1789, apparently a bounty was paid on a beaver in Bolton Percy in Yorkshire. Oh. But that's so aberrant that people think it maybe it was an otter or something. Nobody's yeah. quite sure. But anyway, so probably beaver was extinct by the 14th century in England, Wales, by the 16th century in Scotland. And since then, they haven't existed. However, you may remember that when 
Dominion came out. You very kindly interviewed me as part of the um, Budley Salterton Literary Festival. Tom, I remember it well. I remember it very well. You were gutted because I interviewed you in Budley Salterton on the day that the Times compared me with Thucydides. <laughs> yeah. And you were absolutely, you put you in a foul mood. Yeah. I was very downcast. <laughs> but I then cheered up because I suddenly realised that Budley Salterton is on the River Otter, which right. confusingly is the site of the release of, of beavers into the wild. So the beavers of, of the River Otter. Oh, right. And that they were then, further beavers released into the Forest of Dean. There had already been be- beavers released into the uh, into north of Scotland. And these are Canadian beavers being released, are they? No, this is the Eurasian beaver. So this is the kind of beaver that, that originally lived in Britain. I, I know lots of people may not be keen on the current government, but one thing that is a splendid achievement that the government did uh, and I particularly praise Michael Gove, who um, there was a wonderful picture of him gazing lovingly at these beavers being and released beaver. into the wild. Yes. One of the, the, the great achievements of Michael Gove's political career, he, he, as agriculture secretary, was responsible for reintroducing beaver into the wild. In Ross Barnett's book, you know, he says uh, he's got all these kind of other animals that have gone extinct. So, you know, woolly mammoths, cave lions, uh, aurochs, bears, lynx, all these other creatures. Uh, but yeah. he says the beaver is the only one that's been restored, that's that's come back. Right. And so, you know, Britain is following in the wake of of Canada. Uh, and I, I like to think that Grey Owl would be very pleased to know that it's not only in Canada, but in his native his native England. What was his real name again? Adrian or something. <laughs> no, no, Archibald. Archibald Delaney. So Michael Gove, friend of friend of Beaver. I mean, that's a, yes. that's something to have on your tombstone, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It's uh, it's wonderful. So right, there it is. Canada of course Canada, of course, the home of Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. And it, I think it's wonderful that we've done an episode on on the Beaver as Canada's contribution to this uh this ongoing series of episodes that we're doing. It's a wonderful story. And I think you've done it uh, justice. I think we can safely say that was a, that was a, a tour de force, a tour de force and a tour de <laughs> beaver. You. You're too kind. And thank you very much. Um, I hope our Canadian listeners will f- consider that we've uh, done justice to the, the richness and sophistication of their history. And uh, we'll be back next time for more uh, World Cup related shenanigans. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs>